And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And he had been, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Faithful Simeon had been given a word by the Lord that Messiah would come to him and that he would see Messiah and know the fulfillment of the promises of all the ages would come true before he would pass from this life. But one of the things that Simeon also understood that not everyone could fulfill that. Matter of fact, very few people could fulfill that. Because, see, this Messiah, this, this, uh, this uh, uh, consolation of the Lord would have to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. They would have to be uh, uh, fulfill all the nations on the earth will be blessed in Genesis 12, 3. Uh, they would have to fulfill the prophetic promise made to Jacob, uh, uh, made by Jacob to Judah, that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples, Genesis 29. And the Davidic covenant he would have to fulfill, 2 Samuel 7 your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. The th- your throne shall be established forever. You see, in Jesus Christ, all of these things are fulfilled and so much more. And that's why Matthew begins his gospel, his account of the life of Jesus Christ, with the genealogy of Jesus Christ because he wants you to know who he is and why that matters and what a big difference that will make in your life. So it's my desire today that as you look at uh, Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 through 17, the genealogy uh, of Jesus Christ, that you will see in there a bunch of scallywags, a bunch of sinful people, a bunch of people just like us who are in desperate need of grace. Because what you see in this genealogy is a record of God's grace through the ages. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, in faith, we turn to you and we pray, God, that as we, as we look at this record of flawed, imperfect, sinful human beings in the line of our Messiah, we also look to your hand of amazing grace that comes through Messiah. Bless us now, we pray, and show us wonderful and ancient mysteries that only those who have the Holy Spirit can fully comprehend. In Christ's name, amen. Please do turn to Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, and uh, we, uh, we kind of have a, a rotation with the various Advent services every year. We will, uh, we will go through Matthew or Luke or John, or we'll look at uh, 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 the uh, Advent in the Old Testament or Advent in the Epistles, and this year we're, we're going to be on Matthew, uh, and I will open up this uh, wonderful gospel with the reading of this uh, record of grace that we find in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And and I just want to encourage you, just don't daydream here. This isn't just a list of names. These are people that are in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and they're people just like us that really needed Jesus Christ to come to earth. Hear now the word of the Lord. God says, Matthew writes from Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. 
Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aninadab. Aninadab the father of Hashan, and Hashan the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been, born, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of uh, Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abinajab. Abinajah was the father of Asa, and Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram, and Joram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, and Ammon the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shietel, and Shietel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the father of Abinahalud, and Abinahud the father of Elikim, and Elikim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Elud, and Elud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, and uh, Mathan the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. And what we're going to look at today, as you see, uh, there's really not an outline per se. Uh, if, if you look at your home group helps material, there are some questions there that might help you in the home group or also just for family devotions, uh, perhaps later on this week. Uh, but we're just going to go down and, and basically break down uh, the meaning of each one of these and, and maybe the, the, uh, the examples and some of the events surrounding each one of the people uh, in this life. But we want to start off by looking at how, how he starts off, how Matthew starts off. This is a record. Uh, that word uh, comes from the bark of a papyrus plant. It's a book, basically, a book of the genealogy, uh, the book of the beginning or of origins here. Uh, uh, and you'll see that even referenced uh, in uh, Genesis chapter 2 when uh, the story of Adam uh, comes into play here. So there may be a parallel here. Here's Matthew uh, is talking about the rebirth uh, of the, of a, that brings to eternal life. And then Genesis talking about the birth of the early life that comes to all humans through Adam. And then he mentions the two names here, and, and even in just the very name of Jesus, the gospel comes through. Jesus, of course, is Latin for Jeshu or Isus or Yeshuaiah uh, in Greek, uh, but it means Jehovah saves. Jehovah saves. Yahweh saves. God saves. We don't save ourselves. God saves. And that's good news. And then, of course, he says here, these the Messiah, which is the Hebrew, or Christ, or Christus in the Greek, which means anointed one. And Jesus can save because he was ordained, set apart, qualified for all three anointed offices. He was a prophet, a priest, and a king. And only he can fulfill all three of those. And then he talks about, we talk, talks about these genealogies, the record of these various people. Now, it's interesting, uh, we also have a genealogy in Luke. Luke's is different. It's probably the genealogy of Mary, because Jesus is emphasized as the son of man in Luke. So he takes his genealogy all the way back uh, to Adam. Mark doesn't include a genealogy. 
And I think maybe one of the reasons why is that Jesus is the servant, the suffering servant in Mark, and servants don't matter. So it doesn't matter where they came from. John, of course, emphasizes the deity of Christ, the Son of God, so his genealogy goes back to God where the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But Matthew really emphasizes the kingship of Jesus Christ. Matthew's is the most Jewish of all the books. So it really, really matters that Jesus was connected to the royal line of David. The idea of David is mentioned some 17 different times in the Gospel of Matthew. So he is primarily trying to emphasize the kingship of Christ. And he starts off, of course, here with a supernatural birth in Isaac and then ends with a supernatural birth in the coming of Jesus. And Solomon is the kind of the, the key figure here uh, following after David's line. Uh, in Matthew. Now, one of the things about Ma- uh, the, the genealogy of Matthew is you've got to understand that he is interested in Christology, not chronology. There's some gaps in his genealogy here. And he makes this big issue here of there the, are the 14 generations, 14 generations, and 14 generations, according to one Hebrew scholar by the name of Ficklestein. That could be the name of one of the children coming in the spring. Ficklestein Hammond. Uh, but by the name of Ficklestein, he says that the number 14 was significant in contemporary Judaism as well. But, uh, and then some people have said, well, 14, if you take the, 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 the letters, numbers, and the Hebrew alphabet of the word David, D is 4, V is 6, D is 4, that equals to, to 14. But the fact is, is Matthew didn't tell us why 14 matters. So we just sort of have to guess. But his, it was more important for him to get to that 14 completeness because 14 is uh, 7 is complete in the Hebrew mindset, 3 is complete in the Hebrew mindset, 4 is complete in the Hebrew mindset. He was more interested in emphasizing the completeness of God's plan than he was an actual complete record of the genealogy here. But we understand this, that Jesus is the Alpha and Omega. He is the beginning of end, and he is the, the center of every story. So we can sympathize with Matthew. When we get to heaven, maybe we can ask Matthew why the 14 was uh, so important. But the genealogy is important because if you think about Jesus, how often was his, his uh, birth called into question? You know, the rumor out was that he was the illegitimate son of Mary. And uh, very often his qualifications were called into question. So Matthew, who actually talks about how often the Jewish leadership rejects Jesus, wants to start off by saying he is the one. He is the only one who could fulfill all the promises that were given in the Old Testament. They had to come through in uh, Jesus Christ. Now, we can emphasize genealogies too much sometimes, and Paul says be careful of that. And that was, uh, that was one of the problems with Gnosticism. They would kind of ha- have the genealogies of angels and these uh, divine beings leading to Jesus, and sometimes uh, we don't put our faith in genealogies, but they are of interest here in terms of establishing the credibility of Jesus. So before I get down to the various people that are mentioned, here and kind of uh, take a little visit here into the Old Testament and kind of remind us about some of the wonderful uh, events of, uh, of the Old Testament. I-, I want to talk about, first of all, this is a record of grace. Can we start with Matthew <laughs> and the grace that the, 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 the uh, Apostle Matthew actually received? Again, he is, uh, he is very Jewish. Uh, he, ma- he mentions Old Testament passages over 40 different times, and yet 
he has this consuming interest in the gospel coming to the Gentiles, coming to the nations. Think about Matthew's gospel. It begins with the Magi, right, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. The Magi coming, they were Gentiles, they were invited, they, they were, they were uh, uh, from, from the outside area of the Mediterranean world, and they came. Uh, they were, in a sense, they, they, they looked at stars and signs and wonders and that kind of thing. They were Gentiles at the very beginning of Matthew. And then Matthew closes with the Great Commission. You are to go into all the nations of the earth. But Matthew, as we know, who was formerly known as Levi, was a tax collector. That is still not a real popular profession, <laughs> We've got a grandbaby coming, uh, uh, Lord willing, on uh, I think April 28th. And then I'm thinking, well, you know, that baby could come a couple of weeks. Lord, don't let that baby be born on April 15th. Of all the days <laughs> on the calendar, as I've, I hope I haven't offended anybody. But no one likes paying taxes. Well, you especially wouldn't want to pay them to a gangster. And that's more or less what had happened in many of the, the, the Romans, uh, the tax system. They had two kind of taxes. They had a toll tax, which was an income tax, and they had a ground tax, which was a property taxes. And basically, the Romans demanded these taxes, but they would basically hire people out, a publican, uh, in order to collect these taxes. These uh, tax collectors or these telanes would basically have to collect the amount that the Romans determined, X amount, and then they got to keep as profit anything above that. So there was, in the very system itself, there was an a, 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 a emphasis, a motivation to extort the people, to take more than actually was due from them so that they could have their profits, so they can make their living here. So Matthew came from that situation. He would have been probably the person that Peter and John and Andrew hated the most because he taxed their businesses. So here you see amazing grace where this man who was a collaborator with the Romans, perhaps even a dishonest fellow, uh, or certainly would be motivated by dishonesty, actually gets to be where he's writing this gospel. But then we see here the, the, the grace of God comes throughout uh, the rest of the genealogy. First of all, Abraham. Abraham was a former moon worshiper. There was no reason for him to know God. God appeared to him and said, you leader, leave the country. You've got to leave all this moon worshiping behind, and you're going to come to a place where I'm going to show you. We know about Abraham. He lied about his wife, gave her away twice. God stopped anything from happening with that. But then his descendants ended up being characterized by unfaithfulness, immorality, idolatry, and apostasy. And yet, our God keeps his promises and was faithful to the children of Abraham. Judah, he was not, uh, he was not the oldest. Reuben was the oldest. But Judah was the one that prophetically was to, uh, to have Messiah come from his line because it said, uh, um, Isaac said in uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Israel said in Genesis chapter 49, the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. So there's a, there's a ruling part that comes through the, the family of Judah. Then you have the mention of women. Now, women are not normally included in genealogies. It, it, it's through the, the men where the, the family name is to continue here. But you got this mention of Tamar. Of course, what, what do we know about Tamar? She was the Canaanite daughter-in-law of Judah whose uh, husband was struck dead. And then uh, Judah had a, made a promise to become her, her husband, and uh, she ended up tricking him by, to commit uh, uh, incest by dressing up as a temple prostitute. Then he had Rahab, who was a professional pagan prostitute from Jericho. Uh, he, she ended up saving the, uh, the people of Israel during the, the, uh, the spies of Israel uh, and, and as they were reconnoitering the situation in Jericho here. Uh, and uh, then you have Ruth, of course. She was also a Gentile, a Moabite, uh, enemies of Israel. 
The Moabites, a case, came from the ancestral rape of Lot by his daughter. I mean, you know, so you've got a little kind of an awkward family history in, in, uh, in uh, her background. Then you, had, uh, and then you had, of course, Bathsheba. And notice this, that, he, that, that uh, Matthew says, who had been the wife of Uriah, just to remind you that she was stolen goods, that David had slept with her and then killed his, her husband to cover up the crime. So both Tamar and Bathsheba produced children who in some sense were a replacement for those who had run afoul and received the judgment of God. Um, and of this quartet of, of women here, uh, uh, three of them were outside the family of God, uh, and three uh, were known to be prostitutes or adulteresses. You know, so they, again, had kind of a spotted reputation here, just like us. They were recipients of grace. But there's something remarkable about these women, too. I love that verse that Matthew gets to in chapter 11 here. He says, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. Christianity is not for sissies. We're in desperate need of grace, but we are to take heaven by force. Uh, heaven is to be our priority on this earth. And you see this in these women. They were aggressive women. Uh, Tamar receives Judah, uh, uh, deceives Judah as a prostitute because he had made a promise and she, he wasn't keeping that promise, so he's gonna, she's going to force him into it. Rahab protects the spies, even though that would have been high treason. Ruth pursues Boaz. I mean, you're just talking about uh, kind of an aggressive girl, right? I mean, he wakes up and she's laying at his feet and, you know, it makes it a little awkward sometimes during family devotions. Uh, you got Bathsheba, right? Uh, she commits adultery with David, but you go into uh, Second Kings, uh, I mean, uh, in First Kings, and, and she is really pushing for Solomon to, to get the throne, uh, even though he wasn't the oldest here. So as Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, says about people who take uh, heaven by force, this is the first thing in holy violence, resolution of their will. I will have heaven, whatever it costs me, and this resolution must be in the strength of Christ. And it's interesting, the example that Matthew gives us of these kind of people who take heaven by force are women, are women. In our church, we call women like this pink bulldozers. You know, you, a woman will never stand and preach in this pulpit. Paul says he would not have a woman to preach or teach or have authority over a man. That's one of the distinctives of our denomination, a very unpopular distinctive. But that's what Scripture says, and we keep say, try to do what Scripture says, okay? But i got to tell you one thing. This church, in many ways, is run by strong women, like the ones mentioned here. Well, perhaps not the same past, but... We are all to. We are all to follow this example. We're to take heaven by storm. We're to be done with worldly things. We are to pursue heavenly things. And no matter how what it takes for us to get there, we're going to get there. We're going to promote the glory of God, God above all else. Of course, then you have David, and David's sort of the, the centerpiece. But tell me about David's life, right? He was an adulterer. He was a man of blood, and he was a poor daddy. He was a poor father. He did not uh, instruct his children correctly, and then he avoided uh, them when they uh, failed, and it ended up leading to a civil war, of course. But uh, David is mentioned again, like I mentioned before, 17 times because it is the emphasis on David that's so important to the people of the Jews here. Then you got Solomon, of course. Now, it's interesting, if you go through, it's one of these sad things about the Old Testament. You read 1 Kings 3, and it says, Solomon loved the Lord. We're off to a good start, right? Then you get to 1 Kings chapter 11, it says, Solomon loved many foreign women. 
and they got him, they corrupted him with their influence where he ended up going into idolatry. By his own admission, if you believe that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, as I do, by his own admission, he says, all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. Solomon was a total materialist. He was consumed with the things of this world. He's pre-Instagram by 3,000 years. Just consumed with the stuff of this world. Then, of course, you have his son, who was a total jerk, Rehoboam. He was the one that caused the split between the southern and northern kingdoms because he wouldn't listen to the council of the elders. But then you have many good things reported about Asa, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, Jotham, Hezekiah, and Josiah. And yet they have made some profound mistakes as well, right? Jehoshaphat entered into alliances with uh, evil, wicked kings. Uh, Hezekiah showed the treasures of Israel to the Babylonians uh, because he was so proud of how wealthy he was. Uzziah became proud and decided to to usurp the role of the priest. Uh, Another interesting thing is about some of these other kings. They were decidedly evil, but Manasseh is an interesting uh, subject. If you read the the chronicles of, of, uh, well, if you read uh, Kings, Manasseh is all evil. But it's interesting, by the time you get to Chronicles which was written after the Babylonian captivity and the, and the, and the people came back from captivity, one of the things the, off, the, uh, the writer of Chronicles is trying to emphasize is the grace of God. And he closes with a statement that Manasseh actually turned to the things of the Lord. He had actually offered his son as a human sacrifice to pagan deities. And yet, even for a man that was steeped in wickedness for many, 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 many years, it wasn't too late. In his old age, he turned uh, to the Lord. And then you, uh, we see the Lord's glory departed Israel with uh, Jeconiah. Uh, uh, Matthew, for some reason, uh, uh, leaves out three names that are omitted. He would have had access to those, but again, he's trying to come up to the 14 things. But of all of these things, if you look at all of everybody mentioned here, as you know, if you've read through the Old Testaments, it, there, there's just a sadness, isn't there? There's a sadness about it because it seems like such wasted potential. As Whitner says, for all the sad words of tongue or men, the saddest are, it might have been. What if David had been a man truly pure of heart? What if Solomon had really had maintained his love uh, for God? What if Manasseh had uh, been good uh, to begin with? We'll never know, right? We'll never know. But we can at least uh, appreciate and, and uh, associate ourselves with their failings, can we not? And then you keep, he keeps on going with his genealogy here. You've got the deportation, and, and, and Israel just started to fail. Assyria conquered the ten northern tribes. Babylon, Babylon conquered Judah. Uh, they had their leaders deported. Literally, the people were taken into captivity, uh, if you look at reliefs of the time, with, with fish hooks in their nose. They were dragged off into captivity. Uh, they lost his leaders, they lost their borders, they lost their wealth, they lost their land, and then they basically get to the uh, uh, after-testamental period that just lacks all the, the previous glory. Uh, here it, we have sh- mention of Shetel and Zerubbabel, those, the lines of uh, Luke and uh, Matthew uh, converge, and then they kind of separate again. But then you get to Mary. Mary is just an obscure, sinful, devoted, and faithful mother. She's truly an example of a, of a sterling saint in, in, in many, many ways. But you just need to understand, she was not perfect. 
You know, this is uh, where we, we can come together when it comes to moral issues in our time. We can come together with, uh, uh, with, with Catholics in many ways. But in many ways, we cannot come together on doctrine. And one of the doctrines which, is, uh, which they, they have developed that started in the 4th century, a heresy coming into the 4th century, which they have uh, developed with full-blown doctrine, was the idea of the Immaculate Conception. And that idea is that, that Mary herself was perfect because Jesus was perfect and sinless. Perfection can't come out of imperfection, so Mary must have been perfect and sinless as well. That is, as well. That is completely uh, contrary to what Scripture says. When the angel appears to Mary in Luke chapter 1, he says, favored one, hail favored one. That means one who has been endued with grace. And in her great song, the Magnificat, uh, in uh, Luke chapter 1, 47, she says, my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. If she was perfect and she was sinless, why would she need a Savior? You know who needs a Savior? People who need saving, <laughs> By her own admission, she was not perfect. And yet, as one commentator says, the, the influence began of uh, 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 basically venerating Mary began in the 4th century. And as the, root, the roots of all false teaching come out of Babylon, because Babylon was promoting the worship of man instead of God and the glory of man instead of God, uh, there's this belief that, uh, that Mary worship or Mary veneration became, came from uh, the goddess Semiris. Babylonian priestess and wife of Nimrod, the builder of Babylon, she is said to conceive by been conceived by a sunbeam. She was called the Queen of Heaven, which is a term sometimes referred to, used to refer to Mary. Her son Tammuz was killed and raised forty days later due uh, to Samaris's fasting. Samaris's other names are, and listen to these: Ashtaroth, Isis, Aphrodite, Venus, and Ishtar. Tammuz's other names are Baal, Osiris, Eros, and Cupid. There's just nothing new under the sun, is there? We're still dealing with the gods of Babylon. And it's corrupted, in many ways, uh, the view that many uh, supposed Christians hold to. There's also, of course, mention of Joseph here, here as described as the husband of Mary. Now here with Joseph comes a break. Instead of the pattern of A produced B, Joseph is known as the husband by whom Jesus, of Mary, whom Jesus was born here. So people would be confused by that break if they haven't kept reading. Now you're going to find out next Lord's Day uh, why it is that uh, Joseph is not given credit for being the actual father of Jesus. And of course, if you've read ahead, you know the answer is because the Holy Spirit is the actual father of Jesus here. But as you look at these names, you just see grace, 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 grace. These are flawed people. And the other thing is this, that's fascinating to me, especially the ones after the Babylonian captivity, we don't know anything about these people. They're just ordinary, dull people. You know, so many people go to the scriptures and they look at heroes, and you know, you see so often, you t- like the, for instance, the story of David and Goliath, right? Why did God put the story of David and Goliath in the Bible? To teach you how to overcome the giants in your life. You know, that's not why the story of David and Goliath, that may be an illustration, but that's not the reason why. It's because God is faithful and God is going to keep his promises. And that, that might mean including killing giants in order that the promises would come through. Now, by David's example, if that gives you extra courage to conquer the giants in your life, that's good. But that's not the reason why God included it in the Scripture. David was a flawed man. 
just like we are flawed men. He was in need of as much needed grace as we are. So Matthew's basically saying here, and he's trying to emphasize here, that Jesus came for just ordinary, regular citizens like we are. Can you even rem- do you even know the name of your great-grandparents? Can you think about what their name might be? I mean, here are the people that basically brought you into life, and we struggle trying to remember their names. And that's the way it's going to be with our great-grandchildren. We're just leading ordinary lives. Aren't you glad your hope's not in this world? Aren't you glad your hope's not in your children? How disappointed would Abraham have been if he had read this genealogy and all the account of the people that have gone by here? So here you've got this wonderful story that's going to come with the rest of Matthew here with a virgin who's going to give birth and a Holy Spirit who's uh, by the Holy Spirit and uh, where uh, angel's going to appear to her husband and tell her not to put her away and then they're going to name the child And with all this marvelous truth, with all this magnificence, with all this mystery that's been revealed to us, the Jews did not recognize him. They didn't want a prince of peace. They wanted a prince of war who was going to get rid of all the Gentiles. From a contemporary writing at the time of Christ here from uh, an apocryphal book called Psalms of Solomon, This was a a statement that that the rabbis would say. See, Lord, and raise up for them their king, the son of David, to rule over your servant Israel. In the time known to you, O God, undergird him with the strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, to purge Jerusalem from Gentiles who trample her to destruction. Israel wanted a Savior that was going to save them from the Gentiles. Jesus came to save the Gentiles. That's good news for us. Most of our ancestors would have worshipped Zeus or Odin or Apollo, Mars, Thor. We would have worshipped the gods of war. And yet God sent the Prince of Peace. Now an interesting kind of notation here that I want to close with is you've got this royal line here, and you've got this line from, uh, and also in, in, uh, in Luke chapter 3 that apparently follows uh, Mary's line here. There is a curse inserted uh, during the time of the Babylon captivity, and Jeremiah writes about this in 22, where he talks about uh, Jeconiah, where no man of his descendants will be prosperous sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judas. In other words, you had this promise that was given, but then after all those years, there was a curse that was brought in that they will not be able to rule here. So the, the dual line that you have from Matthew and, and Luke, if what you'll end up finding out is that the line circumvented this curse to Jeconiah because Jesus was not of the blood of Jesus. He wasn't of the blood of that line. He was adopted into that line. And yet he's also the true descendant of David because he's related to Nathan, David's son Nathan, in the line of Mary. He had no children, so there's no one who receives that blessing after him. So he's the only one who could have possibly produced this. And even if someone would claim to be able to produce the lineage going back to fulfill the Abrahamic and Davidic, covenants and, the, and the, uh, the, the covenant given to Judah, the promise given to Judah, they couldn't prove it because when the Romans came in and burned Jerusalem, they burned all the records. Jesus is the only claimant and he's the only one that actually could prove 
that he is Messiah. And people were always asking, who is this who even the wind and the waves obey him? In Matthew chapter 8, when he came into the triumphant entry, uh, people called, called out, Hosanna to the son of David. And people asked, the leaders asked, who is this? And his trial, the high priest of the Jews asked, are you the Christ? And the Roman procreator Pontius Pilate asked, are you the king of the Jews? Well, he is Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. As Donald Barnhouse said, Jesus is the legal Messiah, the royal Messiah, the uncursed Messiah, and the true Messiah, the only possible Messiah. So what should our result be? What, how should that change our life? Well, then we would probably join in with Phillips Brooks in singing, The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Father, we do thank you for the confidence that comes to us as we look at Holy Scripture, God, that we do not follow cleverly devised tales, but you have given us a book of truth, and we believe that truth, and this made all the difference in the world. Lord, help us to be jealous for your glory and consumed with an understanding of your grace. And I pray, God, that we would enjoy that grace and walk in that grace, and it would propel us to greater and greater obedience, greater and greater service, and greater and greater love for you. And even this list of names, if people want to call it that, use that to draw us closer to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.